Where do all of those biases live that are going to cause your decision-making to be pretty irrational? Well, they live in your intuition. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader, all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. We make thousands of decisions every day, but we rarely stop to think about the process we use to dramatically increase the probability of better outcomes. In today's episode, we're joined by the incredible Annie Duke, the Duchess of Poker, who will share her simple tools and strategies for making better decisions and enhancing the chances of better outcomes. We'll also talk about team dynamics and how to apply these constructs inside your own leadership teams in your own companies. I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at PowerEd.ca. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. My special guest today is Annie Duke. Annie is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. Annie's latest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, was released in the fall of 2020. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, she has won more than $4 million in tournament poker. During her career, Annie won a World Series of Poker bracelet and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. She retired from the game in 2012. Prior to becoming a professional poker player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. In 2021, she returned to her alma mater as a visiting scholar and also teaches executive education there. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She is also a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. In 2020, she joined the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Annie, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to Unleashed. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I, uh, I have been looking forward to this, uh, to this conversation for months. I, I loved your book. And you know, I, I thought where I would start was just a really quick personal story about my experience reading your book. 
So okay. I, it, so I, um, I recently went to Boston. So two weeks ago, I was in Boston. I read your book on the flight down. And one of the things I was most excited about this trip uh, to Boston was one of my favorite restaurants. It's called Neptune, Neptune Oyster Bar. And I've been, I've been going there every year for, for six years. I hadn't been there for, for a couple of years uh, uh, through the pandemic. But for those of you that have never experienced Neptune Oyster, it's, it's quite a thing. So not only is the food amazing, the best oysters, they've got this thing called the Johnny Cake, which is basically a, a seafood pancake with maple syrup on it. It sounds a lot, it tastes a lot better than it sounds. But the thing about Neptune is you can't make a reservation. So you have to actually show up to the restaurant, put your name on the wait list, and then they phone you two or three hours later when your table is ready. Now, in the last couple of years, what's changed is they no longer take a wait list. So you literally have to wait in line for hours just for your chance to get a table. And so having just come off of read your book, I'm sitting at the back of this super long lineup that stretched down the street and around the block. And I was the last person in line and there was nobody really coming in behind me. And I found myself using the tools from your book to come up with different scenarios and assign probabilities to them as to whether I should stay in line or not. And one of the, one of the uh, sort of the scenarios I came up with was whether there would be a lot of attrition ahead of me and trying to assign a, a bit of an estimated probability to it. So the decision I made was to stay and we ended up having this great restaurant, this great restaurant experience, this amazing dinner. And I, uh, I credit uh, the tools in your book for staying because I think I probably would have left the line had I not just read your book. So my, my hope for today's conversation is we will allow other people to view the world through the lens that you do, which is all of these opportunities to examine how we make decisions and make better ones. So how long did it take you to get into the restaurant, by the way? Well, it took about an hour and I, I was oh, estimating like, it wasn't bad, but there were so many people that left in front of me. And that's what I was banking on. I said, you know what? Maybe I'm just too stubborn, but I, you know, life is sometimes a game of, of attrition. Now, in that ca this case, I didn't know when to quit. So maybe that was a bad decision with a good outcome. Uh, well, we could talk more about that maybe. But uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a great night and, uh, and it, it only lasted about an hour. So everything turned out, uh, everything turned out marvelously. So, oh, that's awesome. I love it. Maybe where we would start is why is decision-making something that you've decided to become such a subject matter expert and devote so much of your life to? Oh, uh, that's an interesting question, huh? Okay, so uh, so here's the thing. This is why I care about it so much. Um, there are two things that determine how your life turns out. Luck, right? Like the Think about luck just in terms of like the luck at the start of every life, like when are you born? Where are you born? To what parents, right? I mean, this is there's a tremendous amount of luck just even at the start of the life. And then all sorts of things like, are you five feet tall? So you'll never play in the NBA. I don't know. I mean, these are all things that are kind of out of your control, right? So there's all sorts of things that are outside of your control. And that's luck. That, that has a big, big effect on the quality of your life, how your life turns out. But here's the other thing that has an effect is the quality of your decisions. That's it, those, those two things, luck and the quality of your decisions. So here's the deal, by definition, you don't have any control over luck. So while you should acknowledge it and you should see it, right? Like for example, it was out of your control whether people left that line or not, but you were trying to forecast the probability that they would, that's fine, right? 
but it's not in your control if they leave or not. What is in your control is the decision you make about whether you want to stay in that line or not. And, and this is true throughout our lives, right? We always have these decisions. Should we go to college? If we do, what college should we go to? What should we major in? What classes should we take? Um, you know, when you go on dates with people, is this someone that you want to continue dating? As you think about going into your career, there's the decision about what should your career be. But then within that, of course, you're making thousands of daily decisions. And these these are the things that you do have control over that do determine in part the quality of your life. And so I just feel like if you're thinking about it, can't do anything about luck, can do a lot about your quality of decisions. Let's let's get a focus on that and try to really improve that because that's actually going to make people's lives better. One of the first mistakes you say that we make when it comes to decision-making is we evaluate the outcomes, but not the process. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So this goes back to a lot to the luck element, right? So when we think about what determines the outcome of something, right? So you make a decision, you get an outcome. The outcome isn't solely determined by the decision that you made because there's also luck. So let's think about the simplest case. Um, you're going through a traffic light, uh, and we know it's settled, you know, settled fact what the good decision is there. Look both ways, go through green. Um, make sure your car is in good repair. Uh, bad decision, just blow through the red light. Okay. But we know that even though you blow through the red light, you could still get through safely. Quality of the decision aside, just because of luck right? If you go through the green light with a car in good repair, where you've looked, you know, you've seen what the cross traffic looks like, and you see whether someone's turning into or whatever, you can go through it. And all sorts of bad luck can happen to you, you could blow a tire or a car could come from the other way and just hit you having nothing at all to do with the quality of your decisions. So this is the two influences, right? Like, did you make a good decision? Was there luck? Now, in the case of a of a traffic intersection, that's all pretty transparent, right? We, we, we know what the good decision is, go on green, stop on red, uh, and anything beyond that is gonna be pretty much just you can chalk it up to luck. But rarely do we actually face a decision that's like going through a traffic light. Mostly, it's really unclear when we look at in retrospect or really in prospect, um, how much of that is going to be luck and what's, you know, what, what's the quality of the decision? What's luck when we look back on the decision. So like a, a good example that, you know, that I kind of opened my book with is in uh, the 2015 Super Bowl in America, um, uh, the Seahawks were on the, the, the Patriots one yard line and uh, they had, they were on second down and they only had 26 seconds left in the game down by four. So this is a really big situation. The Seahawks have to score a touchdown because the field goal isn't going to do it. It's only worth three. And the expected decision that Pete Carroll uh, think uh, they think Pete Carroll is going to make is to have the Seahawks run the ball. And instead he calls for a pass play, which gets intercepted. Now people look at that and they say, oh, what a terrible decision to this day. It's six years later. And people are like, that was the worst decision in Super Bowl history. Pete Carroll is such an idiot. What a terrible decision. Now, what we know about that, it was a bad outcome, right? Like that we know. But do we really know it's a bad decision? And where we can see this problem, which I call resulting, which is you look at the quality of the result and you go backwards, is it, and I'll just ask you this. 
Imagine that Pete Carroll calls this unusual play. He calls for Russell Wilson, the quarterback, to pass the ball, and it's caught for the game-winning touchdown. Do the headlines say it's the worst decision in Super Bowl history? Okay, first of all, I would have been very, very sad because uh, that's one of the most excited I have ever been in my life because I am <laughs> such a major Patriots fan. But uh, Carol would have been heralded uh, as a genius, uh, in right. reinventing the game, going against the grain. He would have been the best coach ever. That's exactly right. So now we can see the problem with resulting, right? What changes people's view of that? The quality of the result. In one case, it was intercepted. In the other case, it's the game-winning touchdown. But the decision itself remains the same, right? The decision about whether to pass or whether to run, it's the same either way because we aren't omniscient. We don't have a time machine. We don't know how that play is going to turn out. So it's all a matter of probabilities. When you think about it, what's the probability that you're going to score with a, a pass? What's the probability you're going to score with a run? If you do uh, pass the ball, what is it getting you in terms of your overall probability to win the game? And just super quick, it's super simple. The chances of a touchdown are a little bit lower than the chances that you score by running there, very slightly lower. But here's what you get. If you run the ball, the clock is going to run out and, and they've only got one timeout. So you're only going to get two plays off if you choose to run the ball. But if you pass the ball, you can get three plays. And I think that we can all do the math. And when you're playing against Bill Belichick and the Patriots defense, three plays are better than two. And what you're paying for that extra play for that third play is this basically the chances that the ball gets intercepted, which are hovering around 1% of the time. So this is where we can see the really malign results, the malign influence of resulting. This is a 1% outcome that we saw this interception. That's how often that's going to occur. And yet the headlines are, he's an idiot. It was the worst play in Super Bowl history for something that you're only going to see 1% of the time. So what I would argue is that's like telling someone who ran a red light, good job, do that again, because you got through successfully. And I hope that we don't ask people to do that. But what happens is that we over-index on like this one result that we get instead of thinking long-term, what is my best choice? So like if we go back to your oyster bar situation, right, you're forecasting some probability that other people are going to leave the line. You're saying right now it looks like it's going to be a three hour wait. Let me think what portion of this line do I think are going to leave because they're going to be thinking, oh, this is too long to wait. I'm just going to go to some other oyster bar, which isn't as good. And you forecast that and then you figure out, OK, if that's the case then, and that's my best guess, which is fine. It's better to guess than not guess at all that as long as it, you know, you're sort of thinking about it and you decide enough people are going to leave that I think it's going to take me about an hour. And then you ask yourself, am I willing to wait an hour for these delicious Johnny cakes and some oysters? And if your answer is yes, then you would stay in the line. If your answer is no, you would leave. Now, if you leave and it turns out it would have only taken you know, 35 minutes because a snowstorm came in and everybody left, that doesn't make your decision bad. And, but we think it does. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to avoid. Well, and I was even using technology to gather some data while I was in line. So I was looking at, okay, what are my top five restaurants in Boston's North End? Let's go on open table and let's see yeah. what the wait times are. And it was going to be at least two hours before I could get into those. So I'm like, you know, 
I'm either going to that's like, right. you know, Arby's in Boston or, or I'm going to wait in this lineup come hell or high water. So that's exactly uh, right. And, and if you choose to stay in that situation, having done your research and it takes you longer than expected, it doesn't make it a bad decision. Now, yeah. what would make it a bad decision is if after it turned out that your forecast wasn't unfolding as you had hoped, that you stay in the line, right? So when you make those forecasts, just say, but if it turns out that literally no one is leaving the line, right, then I'm going to come back at another time when it is in peak hours and I will go to Arby's, right? As long as you sort of have a plan, like, okay, I've made this decision now, but if certain things occur in the future, I'm going to yeah. update my plan, then that that's great. Yeah. And the problem that we have, if you think about it, like, think about the hiring problem, right? You hire someone, they work out, you're a genius interviewer, you're the best ever. What happens when they don't work out? Like you're firing the person who, who hired that, that person who didn't work out, but why, right? Like hiring only works out 50% of the time. So what you're trying to do is create a really solid process that's going to make you a better predictor. And if you do that, you might be able to push it to 60%. Yeah. But what that means is that 40% of the time, you're going to want to let the person go that you hired because that's a decision made under great uncertainty. It's not surprising. You don't have the person, you know, generally you're not hiring someone who you got a trial run with for a year or something. It's like, I've got some references and some interviews and a CV, right? So what that means is 40% of the time, the person's not going to work out. I hope your head isn't exploding talking about how anybody who interviewed them was an idiot because the person didn't work out well. In the same way that if they do work out well, I hope you're not saying that anybody who interviewed them is a genius and the best talent spotter ever. And we're going to put them on every single interview to come because deciding just on the quality of the result when, you know, if you're doing a great job, 60% of the time, you'll get a decent result and 40% of the time you won't, that would be nutty. But basically that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why that, that Pete Carroll example is so poignant because there's so much we can learn by how we evaluate people's capabilities from just the th just that one story. So, Annie, in, in my beginner's mind, when it comes to decision making, I kind of break it down into beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And the work that you do is certainly in the, in the advanced category. When I think of a, a beginner decision maker, I associate that with somebody that generally uses intuition or nothing to make decisions. Yep. The, inter the intermediate for me would, would be a pros and cons list. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with intuition and a pros and cons list? Oh my gosh. Okay. So, all right. So let's, let's start with intuition and then, and then pros and cons lists are related to the problem with intuition. So the issue with intuition is this, that we know, you know, from the work of like Daniel Kahneman and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow and a variety of other people who have written in that space, that our decisions are plagued with cognitive bias. So just to name a few Confirmation bias is a really strong one. Um, so if you have a belief, we think that what you do is you come across information in the world and some you evaluate it objectively. And then if the information comports with your belief, uh, you might maybe strengthen the belief that you have. But if the information um, does not comport with your belief, then you will change your belief. So I think that's what everybody's intuition is about how we're going to handle information that we go find out in the world. But I think that all you have to do is look at the political ecosphere to know that that, that can't possibly be true. That instead, I mean, we're experiencing this in America right now with the Virginia election, uh, which just happened where the Republican beat the Democrat. 
And um, progressives are saying it proves that they should double down on their progressiveness. Moderates are saying this proves that we should double down on being moderate. You know, Republicans are saying this proves the country is turning in our direction. Why? Because we all want to confirm the beliefs that we already have. So we look at we don't just search for information that conforms to our beliefs. But when we come across information neutrally, like the Republican one in Virginia, we're all trying to spin that to confirm the beliefs that we already have. Right. So if you're a progressive, you're saying this is why we need to double down on things like paid family leave and so on and so forth, because you're trying to get people you, you basically don't like it when the world doesn't fit with your point of view. OK, so that's a really strong cognitive bias. Right. It's kind of like if you're saying like two plus two equals five and someone shows you the math and you say that's wrong. No, two plus two does equal five. But that's basically what we're doing all the time. Right. Um, so. So that's a kind of thing, you know, that would be one cognitive bias. There's a lot of other ones, like besides confirmation bias, like overconfidence. We tend to rate ourselves more highly than we would other people who are like us in things. We think uh, there's planning fallacy. I know everybody's had this one. You always think you're going to get projects done more quickly than you actually will. Um, so that's just a forecasting problem. There's availability bias, like uh, things that we've seen a lot or that are easy for us to recall in our memory. We judge as more frequent. It's part of the reason why people think that um, drowning is much less of a danger than a terrorist attack. Uh, where, where drowning is a much bigger danger to you, actually, than a terrorist attack. But it's because we we don't really see drowning on TV, but we see lots of terrorist attacks on TV. So they're very available to us. OK, so where do all of those biases live that are going to cause your decision making to be pretty irrational? Well, they live in your intuition. Right. So Kahneman talks about this difference between system one and system two. System one is pretty automatic. It just kind of runs on its own. That's where gut feel where intuition is going to live. It's going to be pretty reflexive. Um, you know, system two is more deliberative where you sit down and you're like trying to create decision trees or you're really thinking through problems. Uh, you create rubrics for your decisions. Maybe you have some algorithmic support, whatever, but that's going to be like the slower thinking. So one of the ways that you can sort of, a good way to think about system one versus system two is most of driving, when you're an experienced driving driver, is system one until a deer jumps out in front of you. And then system two gets engaged because you've got to actually think about that. Okay. So if bias lives in system one and your gut or your intuition is a system one process, what do you think is going to get you the most bias in your decision making? Going with your gut, right? It's like, what is your first reaction to information that you see? It's, oh, that can't be right because it disagrees with me. Um, but maybe then you stop and think about it and hopefully you figure out that's wrong. That's problem number one with intuition. The other problem with intuition, and this is particularly true for leadership, is that if you're making decisions by intuition, you can't up-level your team because there's no way to, to examine that intuition, right? And, and we've all come across people like leaders where you say, well, why did you make this decision to hire this person? Or why did you make this decision to go with this strategic plan or this particular product that you want to develop? And they're like, well, I've seen it before. It's, I've got gut, you know, good gut feel. Or uh, I've talked to people in venture capital and said, you know, where they tell me essentially, well, I just know a good founder when I see one, right? Okay, and it's so like, okay. Annie, I have, I, so you're making me think a lot about 
I uh, like merit, I, I'm a big fan of meritocratic decision-making, but how, like when you're, when you're using that to apply it to teams, like how do you help teams see each other's biases? And then how do you sure you might think you're using a meritocracy, but the most credible person that you're, you're allowing to sort of be the person that makes the decision is not using facts and information. They're using their own biases. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, we can circle. Sorry, I was going on about intuition because I have such a thing about it because yeah. um, that we didn't get to pros and cons list, but we can do that later. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So here's the issue, right? Is that what is the cure for the inside view? What is the cure for the way that your own intuition might be biased? And that is to get to the outside view or an outside perspective. Okay. So the outside view you can think of as like what's objectively true of the world. Okay. So I can think all day that two plus two equals five, but what's objectively true is that two plus two equals four, right? So, uh, so we can think about um, one of the things that one of the things you want to look for in terms of the outside view is to get base rates. So what are base rates there uh, in the situation that I'm considering? What is the most likely result? Okay. So um, if I, for example, were to think about how long it might take me to get from point A to point B, um, and my intuition tells me, oh, I'll be able to get there in 15 minutes but I look it up on Google Maps and Google Maps tell me that the average travel time is 30 minutes, that's the outside view. That's telling me this is what's true of the world in general, right? And so then I ought to change what my intuitive response is. So that's just sort of like facts and figures, right? So uh, you can go and find those things out. But then the other thing that's part of that getting outside of your own inside view is to get the perspectives of other people. So in theory, a team should cure the inside view. Right. And because while your inside view, your intuition might be biased and my intuition might be biased, we probably have different biases when we're thinking about it. And so if we can then exchange our points of view, our perspectives on the problem, that should help to neutralize that problem, improve the quality of the decision by getting more perspectives into the mix. That's going to help me to tame anybody's individual biases. Right. Okay. So. That's great, except the way that team decision-making is run is usually amplifying bias, not mitigating it. And the reason is like, how, how do brainstorms happen? Oh, we, you know, let's brainstorm this new strategic direction or let's brainstorm um, uh, different products we could be developing or let's brain, we have to make a settlement officer. Let's, let's all sit in a room and brainstorm together about what the settlement offer should be. It's all happening together in a room of people all talking. So it's really simple to show you what the problem with that is. Let's think about the settlement offer. We're trying to decide what settlement we want to offer and we're going to brainstorm it. And I talk to Jeff and I say, Jeff, what do you think the settlement should be? And Jeff says, well, I've been thinking about this and I think it should be 100,000. Okay, so what do we all do now? We all now start talking about whether 100,000 is the right number. Should it be lower? Should it be higher? But we're all talking around this 100,000 that's been offered first, right? But now imagine that Jeff goes first and Jeff says, I think the settlement should be a million. And now what do we all do? We start saying, should be less than that? Should be more than that? How do we feel about that? Too much, too little. Now, it's pretty easy to figure out that in the first case, whatever settlement the group comes up with is going to be closer to 100,000 because we all got influenced by your perspective and anchored to your number. In the second case, it's going to be closer to a million, right? So we can see that that's going to spread that out. And that's true of ideas as well. Like when we're thinking about strategic directions or products, we start talking about the first thing that somebody says, and then we don't get everybody's actual perspectives. Separate and apart from that, 
Nobody wants to disagree with leadership, which is another problem. Leadership is very persuasive. Subject matter experts are very persuasive. And what this stops us from doing is actually getting people's perspectives. So the cure to that is to have the first step of any conversation, whether it's a brainstorm or people evaluating a candidate that you're thinking about hiring or navigating a decision like what do you think your remote work policy should be or whatever it might be to get the members of the team to give you independent and asynchronous feedback prior to coming into the meeting. So if you take the settlement situation, hey, we're all going to have a meeting. We're going to be discussing what the settlement ought to be in this case. Can everybody please independently, don't reply all, give me the number that you think we should settle at and what, what your rationale is that for that is. So now I get everybody to answer me out from under the influence of everybody else in the group. So I actually get their independent perspectives. And now that does a whole bunch of things. It stops this contamination, this contamination of bias from occurring. It allows people who aren't as senior or maybe who are more introverted to get their voices heard, which is really, really important. It allows you to actually see where there's dispersion of opinion, which does two things for you. It gives you great things to talk about because you should dig in. You know, Jeff, you said 800,000 and Susan said 200,000. I'd love to see where this difference is coming from so that we can understand this decision better. And it normalizes the idea that what makes teams great is the difference in perspective. That's why you have a team in the first place. And all of that is going to help to tame the bias that really plagues most of our decision making when we're trying to make decisions on our own. Totally. Well, and this just came up a couple of days ago in our own team discussion because we we have a pretty, uh, you know, I think a healthy culture. Uh, people feel relatively comfortable, you know, speaking their, their truth. And we're about to have a team retreat in a couple of weeks. And we've got some really important things we're going to introduce to the to the whole company, and we want to get their input. So our our knee jerk reaction to that was, well, we can just have open discussion because people feel comfortable sharing their opinions. And it, it was your book that sort of informed us to make a different decision there because we don't want to contaminate the group because it even happens in groups that have a high level of trust and and openness to conflict. That's exactly right because. There's a couple of things that can happen. There's a certain amount of conflict that people just don't want to have, right? Nobody wants to disagree so many times. And the other thing is that I can get influenced by what you're saying and like not even know it, or somebody else might say something and then I don't speak up because I was going to say something similar, but that then you're losing signal. Because if I know that two people independently have the same perspective on a problem, that's really good signal for me, but I lose that in the room. So I've done this with so many different things. So as an example, um, with a leadership offsite that I was helping a team with, and they were going to do a SWOT analysis, each member of the team did independently did a SWOT analysis. And then that was then brought together instead of creating the SWOT analysis in a group setting. And that allowed you to see more of what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, what are the challenges in the long term or the short term that we might be facing. We ran another process where uh, we were hiring a chief people officer and each person who was Uh, who we felt was on the leadership team, who was going to be able to provide a good opinion, had to go through independently. Each of them wrote a job description. Each of them had to describe to a recruiter, wrote a thing describing to a recruiter what type of person would be uh, the right type of person for this sort of job. Each person said, what are the short-term challenges this person is going to have to solve for internally, externally? What are the long-term challenges this person is going to have to solve for internally, externally? And at the top of it, they just said, on a scale of one to seven, how um, 
how much of an emergency, right? Like how important is it that we hire into this position right now? And so you can see that you can see everybody thinks it's a seven plus, or some people think it's a two and some people think it's a seven. And now you can take all of that independent feedback and you just get a much layer, better lay of the land. And you can imagine that as you create a job description and a rubric for hiring this chief people officer, that the quality of that is going to go up so much because you've gotten so many different people who are inside the company and understand what the challenges of the company are and what they're facing within their function that they need help from, from that role. And they're now getting to provide their independent feedback out from under the influence of, for example, the CEO really sort of speaking their mind in a way that causes people not to speak up as much. Got it. So Annie, I I want people to be able to leave this conversation today with just enough information to be dangerous. And so I want to, can you walk in dangerous in a good way? So better decision makers. So can you walk us through just some of the really high level, simple steps in your advanced decision-making framework? Yeah. So the first thing is don't ever accept. I'm just guessing. Um, That's number one, because I think that's a lot of reason why people will sort of default to their gut decision because they'll be like, well, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, You know, there's no way for me to know for sure. But the thing is that what you need to understand is that to take your example with the oyster bar, there's nothing about which you don't know anything, right? Do you know for sure what the length of time it's going to be for you to get into the bar? Of course not. Do you know for sure how many of the people in front of you are going to leave? Of course not. But you have to then scan, but what do I know? Because even though I don't know 100%, like with perfect accuracy, I also don't know nothing because I know a lot about human behavior. And I know how often I would be likely to leave in this situation. And I can put that on, you know, now I can start to make some educated guesses. It's like, I I say to people, like, if I told you I had a cat sitting on my lap and I said, what's the weight of the cat? You could say, I don't know. I have no idea. I can't see the cat. But if I said, now, come on, like, take a guess. I know you would guess like eight pounds or something because you, you know, cats are rarely 20 pounds and they're usually not four pounds. And right? I, like, I was going to, I was going to say 22 pounds. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That would be a really, by the way, a very fat cat, but notice, even though you're on the high end of the scale, you're not telling me my cat weighs a hundred pounds, right? Because you, you actually do know a lot about cats. That's the thing. And so for anything that you're making a decision about, don't accept I don't have any information. I'd just be guessing because there's nothing about which you're actually just guessing. And when you do force yourself to make those kinds of educated guesses in terms of forecasts, like how long do you think the person will stay? What's the probability that they leave involuntarily within the next two years, like in a hiring process, for example, right? When you do that, what that forces you to do is be a knowledge seeker. How do I improve the quality of my knowledge? It makes you go look things up, for example. Like you went and you looked up how long are the wait at other restaurants. You might not have done that if you, were, if you weren't going through a real process, right? So now you, you look up information. You try to get other people's perspective on the problem. You, tr- you might look up the average weight of a house cat. And this is all going to help you to be a better educated guesser. And the fact is that any decision you make is a forecast of the future. And so the better your forecast of the future the better your decisions are going to turn out. And that's what not accepting, like it's just my gut or I'm making a guess or whatever is going to get you is to say, no, when I think about it, I think about what are the possible outcomes? What are my alternatives? 
how often do I think that this thing is going to turn out well? How often do I think it's going to turn out poorly? What do I think the payoffs of those are? So that's step number one is just always be a forecaster. Think like a forecaster. The second thing is, as you're thinking like a forecaster, get independent forecasts. So I'm going to do a lot better. And, and this is well known. Like there's a classic jelly bean jar that you do as like a thing at the holiday party, right? Like whoever gets closest, they're going to, you know, win a prize or whatever, a gift card to a restaurant. We all know that if you take the average of all the guesses, you're usually pretty dead on to the number of jelly beans in the jar. And that average guess is better than any individual guess, right? And I actually just did this with a sales team where I had just started working with them and I was trying to benchmark things for them. So the benchmarks that I wanted to think about were what's the probability of closing an S1 you know, what's the probability of closing an S0 and S1, you know, as things were moving through the funnel, what was the probability that that would actually result in a close? Um, and then also asking what's uh, the kind of like uh, average time to close for enterprise, for mid-market, for small. Um, and what we did was I looked up the historicals, right? So we calculated the historicals for this company, but I didn't let the sellers know that. And then each individual seller had to make a forecast. And of course, it was very noisy. There was lots of you know, one person was like, oh, it's reasonable for it to take two years. Another person is like, no, the average is three months, whatever, right? So there's a lot of variation. But when we took the averages, they were dead on to the historicals. So the average for uh, S0 was, I think, like, um, right around 9%. And the historical was like 8.8. Right? I mean, this is how dead on and this was despite some people saying, oh, we closed 40% of those, right? So what does this now help the sellers with? Right. First of all, we've shown that if you take the average of the group, you get to the historical. But the other is by revealing the historical numbers, we now give them an anchor point as they're thinking about opportunities they're pursuing so that they can now manage their funnel better, better to see if they're outperforming the historicals, which is what your goal is. Can we outperform those those benchmarks? But if you don't know the benchmarks, it's very hard to be a good forecaster because you're just leaving yourself kind of guessing. But notice we did all of that independently. So when we did the, you know, developing the rubric for the CPO, all of that was independent. If you're thinking about a settlement, all of it is independent. And getting those independent looks is going to improve the forecast. And every decision is a forecast of the future. So that's really kind of in a nutshell what you're trying to do in order to improve your decision quality. Anna, you talk about the importance of assigning percentages to possible outcomes. And, and why it's so much more powerful than using language like highly likely, frequently, less likely. Why are percentages so important? Yeah, so, um, well, so it's twofold. Okay, so the first problem is confirmation bias and hindsight bias. So hindsight bias is looking back and saying, I knew it. Confirmation bias is me thinking that you're saying the same thing that I am, right? So so the issue is that when we're using terms like, I think it's really likely, right? Or this is a real possibility, or maybe, these are all terms that describe actual probabilities, right? They're probabilistic terms. What I'm saying is it will happen some of the time, but not all. Okay, so that's what those words mean, um, but it's not precise. So when I say to you, I think this is a real possibility, the question is, what do you think I mean by that? And what do you think you mean by that? This is, this is 
this is like looking to the future. So if you think that real possibility means 40%, and I think real possibility means 75%, notice that when we both agree it's a real possibility, we've actually had quite a strong disagreement. But we haven't uncovered it because we've used a word that's sort of like mealy. It has a broad target range for what it could mean. And now we don't even know that we disagreed with each other. And then this becomes a problem when we're looking back in hindsight. And um, let's say that it, it doesn't work out. And now you're asking me about it. We said, I said it was a real possibility. And I'm thinking that I was telling you it was going to work out 40% of the time. And you're like, no, you told me it was a real possibility, which you thought was 80% of the time. Right. So it makes it very hard both to make a good decision prospectively, but also to understand retrospectively what did we get wrong because we don't even know what real possibility meant. Right. And so that was a huge, well, and I was going to say that was a huge mistake that JFK made in the Bay of Pigs invasion, which you yeah. allude to in your book. And I highly recommend read that section in, in Annie's book, uh, and that illustrates it. So, Annie, how do you know when you have enough information to move ahead with the decision then? Yeah. So that's really a tough one. So it, you have different standards. Let me just say that. So uh, you have a different standard depending on the impact and kind of like the optionality of the decision that you're making. So um, it basically is what's your tolerance for a bad outcome. And you could have a lot of tolerance for a bad outcome for two reasons. One is that it's not that bad, right? Like uh, you see people like agonizing over a restaurant menu, like, asking everybody at the table and then asking the server what their favorite dish is and looking on Yelp to try to see what other people who've eaten there like. And the fact is like, if you have dried chicken, is it that bad? And the answer is no. So why are you spending 15 minutes trying to figure out what to order off the menu uh, once you've figured out the things that you probably would like um, when you could actually be socializing with the people that you're with? It seems like a pretty bad use of your time for something that's not gonna be particularly high impact, right? And then the other way that we can get to um, a, a faster decision is if you can undo it, right? So if it's pretty easy to reverse the decision, you can then you should have a lower standard for when you're kind of done seeking information. So the way, the mental model that I try to think about is like uh, hiring an intern versus hiring a CEO. So if you're hiring an intern, you can go pretty fast. Because uh, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't have a humongous effect on your enterprise. Uh, and it's pretty easy to let one go. But now CEO is a whole different thing, right? Like there is a golden parachute involved and it's like a big disruption to the company. It doesn't look good to the outside. So you should probably have a higher standard for how much information you need, sort of what that threshold is for go um, when you're hiring a CEO than when you're hiring an intern. And you can use that construct as you go into any kind of decision making. So, so let me just say that to start. But once you've decided what your threshold is, right? Like how slow, like how important is the decision? Basically, when you stop is when you believe the next piece of information isn't going to change your mind. Now that seems super obvious, right? Like, well, if whatever I find out next, is it actually going to change whether I'm going to hire this person or not? Like, what could it be? What would some, like if I call the 10th reference? Like, do they, do I really think they're going to tell me anything new, right? Like, what would they have to say? The person's a serial killer. Like, you know, I've got nine stellar references. What's the 10th going to say, right? And that's when, when you start to understand that that incremental information is not actually going to change you, then, then you should just stop. Now, the issue though, is that even though that seems super obvious when I say it, people don't do it. 
And the reason they don't do it is people are afraid of uncertainty and they think, well, what if that 10th really did like they, they tell me they were a serial killer or whatever. And so they get very afraid of making a decision when they're not a hundred percent sure. But the fact is that you can't be a hundred percent sure. That's the whole point because there's luck involved and there's always going to be hidden information. And at some point you have to make a trade-off between the time you're spending to get that information that you could be spending on other things that are going to have bigger payoffs. And, um, uh, and, you know, the whatever certainty you're trying to chase, which is an illusion. Now, as leadership, we tend to reinforce that behavior because when we do postmortems, and now there's a new term that people love to use, which is blameless postmortem, which I will tell you, there's no such thing as that. Um, because you're always asking somebody, like you say, we care about the what, not the who. Okay, but it's a who that did the what. It's now having to defend their actions. Give me a break. Like yeah. we all know you're only doing a postmortem when there's a crap result. And of course, someone feels like they're being blamed. So what helps them in that room? Right. I didn't just call five references. I called 15. That helps them to sort of get out of that blame. But from the leadership standpoint, it should be like, oh my gosh, why did you call 15 references instead of just five? Wasn't five enough? Because you want people to be moving faster and generating more decisions and being more innovative. But a lot of times, two things result from the way that postmortems, people don't stop. They don't know when to stop because they're not just thinking about, is this decision I'm going to go with? And whatever new information I get isn't going to change their mind. What they're thinking instead about is if I get a bad outcome and I'm in that blameless postmortem, can I defend myself? And the more research you've done, they think in their head, the more defense that they have. And that's why they'll continue past the point it's at, after which it's worthwhile. Wow. You talk about motivated uh, reasoning in your book quite a bit too. And that, that was a term uh, that was really captivating for me. Can you talk about what it is and, and how can we overcome it in ourselves? And are there some ways that we can help other people overcome it? Yeah. So this is really related to confirmation bias. Um, so motivated reasoning is basically reasoning in a way to get to a conclusion and, instead of to find out the truth. So what do I mean by that? Like, let's say that, um, uh, let's say that I want to get to the conclusion. My motivation is to get to the conclusion to reinforce a particular belief I have. Like, um, uh, I believe that uh, the market is is in a bubble right now. Okay, um, and this is a strong belief. This is my model of the world. I really believe that the market is in a bubble. My reasoning about information is going to be motivated to confirm my belief that the market is in a bubble right now. So when I see information from an investment website or financial analysts, or I'm talking to my financial advisor or whoever it is, I'm going to be hearing it in a way that's going to confirm the the results I already have that I want to get to, as opposed to listening to it in an objective way to get to the truth. So there's a classic study by Dan Kahan that, that demonstrated this, where basically they showed people um, statistics on uh, like, does a hand cream um, cure psoriasis? Like a skin cream, does it cure psoriasis, right? So this isn't something that people have any prior beliefs about, like nobody cares about skin. I mean, I guess people with psoriasis care about it, but most people are like, ask whatever. So you show them like, here was the treatment group. 
here are people who didn't get the treatment. This is what happened with their skin condition. And you show them those results. And then you ask them, do you think that the skin cream works? And, you know, you find people, they're pretty good with that, right? So they, they figure out, you know, the skin cream works or it doesn't work. But now you show the exact same people, the exact same data, but it's gun control and crime. Right. So the question now is, as opposed to when you apply the skin cream, what happens to psoriasis? It's when you uh, put in gun control measures, what happens to crime? Now, with these particular people, um, they, you already know what their political bent is. Right. So they've already been quizzed prior to coming in on what their political positions are. Okay, So we already know, do they like guns or do they not like guns? Right. So we already know that. So remember, we're showing them the exact same data. All we did was relabel it. And all of a sudden, people who are pretty good at seeing what the data told them about the relationship between skin cream and psoriasis, they're really bad at this. If they think that gun control, if they're pro-gun control, they read the data that gun control lowers crime. If they're um, anti-gun control, they read this data, no matter what the data is, they read the data that it either has no effect on crime or it increases crime. And this is data that we know that they know how to read. Because they were looking, they knew how to read it when it was when it was skin cream and psoriasis. Okay, so that's like the classic example of motivated reasoning because we think it's a data table. Like this is totally objective. How could anybody make a mistake with it? And it's like never underestimate motivated reasoning. So again, the solution for motivated reasoning is twofold. The first is get other people's perspectives. So we've already talked about that a lot, right? So get different people looking at the data, um, different people come to different conclusions, and then they have to be able to give their rationale as what, why do I believe that there's this relationship between these two? And when you have that collision of the different points of view, looking at this stuff, you're usually going to get somewhere closer to the truth. So that's number one, it's just other people's perspectives. Number two, and this is actually a really good check on motivated reasoning, is when you're in it, when you're facing down the data, that's when you're most likely to be susceptible to these kinds of cognitive biases. But if you think in advance and say, what would I have to see? What kind of data would I have to see that would cause me to change my mind? And you write that down and you write those benchmarks down. You know, this is one of the power of like KPIs, for example, is it's sort of setting these benchmarks, but it's doing it for the future, right? Then you can start to say, this is what would cause me to change my belief. So um, a there's a very classic study by Barry Shaw that shows this where um, basically he had people like, Jeff, you come in and I show you uh, these two products that you could allocate um, 10 million in marketing dollars to. And one is a near beer and one is a light beer, right? And you're going to launch this into a new market, say Switzerland. So, but it's an all or nothing allocation. So I ask you and you say, you look at the data and there's arguments for both. One is a faster growing product, but the other is sort of a perennial seller, right? And so, you know, people sort of split 50-50 on this decision, but you, let's say you choose the light beer, right? Um, and then it, I now show you five, like a year's worth of, five years worth of performance data for that product, having allocated this 10 million to it. Um, and it shows that the product didn't do any better than the one that you didn't allocate to. Okay, so you get some negative results from this. And now I say, okay, now I'm going to give you 20 million and you can allocate it now pro proportionally in any way that you want across these two products. Okay, basically what happens is that if you allocate it to the light beer first, you're, you'll allocate like 13 million of that 20 to the light beer going forward. 
right? Because, because it's motivated reasoning. I don't want to believe that my previous decision was wrong. Whereas people who come in and look at the same data, but didn't make the previous allocation, they'll allocate like 9 million of that 20 million to the same, to that same product. Okay. So they make a much more rational decision where they divide the budget up a little more equally, a little more to the, to the other product. Whereas you're putting, oh, dumping more than 13 million back into it because of this sort of motivated reasoning problem. So how do you fix it? If at the initial allocation, I say to you, what are the performance benchmarks that you need to see from this product for you to decide that you should continue to allocate to this product? And you write those things down. And now I show you the same bad performance and I ask you to make the allocation. All of a sudden you look like just like the people who came to the decision fresh. And so this is like a big lesson in decision-making is write down what you would have to see in the future to get you to change your mind. Yeah. There, there has to be at least some willingness to change your mind as well. I would think, right. Yeah. And and maybe, excuse me, but conversation for another day, but I mean, I'm interested in the venue, like these conversations probably can't take place very well on social media, for example, whereas where we find most of ourselves having these discussions these days. Um, Yeah, no, social media is not a great place for truth seeking, I have to say. So um, I try to handle it by following people sort of, I follow people from a very broad spectrum of, of sort of belief systems. My only rule is that I won't follow you if you're not arguing in good faith. I love that. I love that. And because there's no, it's like, so do I check in on them occasionally just so that I kind of know what they're saying? Yes, because it's good to have that knowledge. But in terms of actually trying to see what do people believe, I've like, you know, for me, um, I'm following a very broad spectrum of, for example, political beliefs, because I want to sort of see the whole spectrum. I want to see the way that different people view these problems, yeah. right? Even I have a lot of science follows and the people that I follow come from all sorts of different points of view. Um, yeah. And I'm just trying to make sure that I've got a pretty broad diet, um, but I'm also not like anything that I see on there. I, it's like verify, verify, verify. Yes. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, like as an example, you'll see this all the time on social media where people will show like literally 15, a 15 second clip of something that you knew was like a 20 minute interview. So you can like set rules for yourself. Like I don't look at the 15 minute clip and then retreat it and say, oh, these people are so awful. I'm like, let me go find the whole interview. Cause I'm guessing that if they only clipped out 15 minutes, I mean, 15 seconds, they probably were looking for a very particular string of words. And I'm guessing that context came before and context came afterwards. And it would be really good if I saw that context. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. You know, it's just always make sure that like, think about um, the motivations of the person who's posting it. Think about what's the information I could go find out to try to figure out like, how do I situate this? Is it really true? Um, you know, when someone summarizes a report, um, go look at the report yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, great social media uh, habits and advice from Annie Duke. You heard it here. Annie, I want to talk uh, about you a little bit now, if you'll, if oh, you'll no. humor me okay. and, and indulge me. Now, you've been on record as you know talking about why you started playing poker. And, and so you started playing it in the 90s before it was in vogue. I mean, before Rounders came out, uh, as an example, one of my favorite movies. What made you so good at the game? You know, it's a, my, my initial instinct is to tell you I wasn't that good at the game. Um, 
so let me explain what that means. Um, there's different ways that you can think about being good at something. One is like objectively good compared to the scope of the problem that you're facing. And the other is enough better than the people that you're competing against that it's fine. <laughs> so that's kind of the category that I put myself in. Poker is a really, really complex game. I mean, you know, as, as hard as chess is, try chess where you can't see all of your opponent's pieces. And then sometimes like a chess gnome comes and takes your bishop away from you. I mean, that's kind of like, <laughs> that's sort of what poker is. It's a, it's a very hard problem because <laughs> you can't see your opponent's cards. And then there's all sorts of luck that's involved. And when we think about the resulting problem, it's like, how do you look back in hindsight when you lost in a, in a session of poker and try to figure out like, was that because of my decision-making? Like, was it because of luck? Like these become very hard problems to overcome. It's like a real-time sort of cognitive bias puzzle, right? How do I overcome that bias? And trust me, all the things that I just told you are things that I would apply in poker. So poker is a game that is so insoluble that I would describe myself in an objective sense is quite bad at the game in comparison to sort of an omniscient, all-knowing being. I think that I was terrible. That being said, I was better enough than the people I was playing against <laughs> to oh, be good yeah. at it. So, <laughs> so why was I good at it? I don't, you know, it's so hard to say. I, I obviously just sort of naturally think probabilistically, which is something that's really important and which I got you to do, right. Which I'm very <laughs> excited about. Yeah. Um, and in order to excel in a, in an environment that, that's uncertain like that, you really do have to think probabilistically, like everything is sort of pricing yeah. and trying to figure out what are the odds that I win this hand compared to the odds that the pot is giving me. And you have to think that way. Um, number two, I think I'm a naturally long-term thinker, um, which is really important in poker. If you tried your best to win every single hand, you would lose in the long run because in order to maximize the chances you win any hand that you're playing, it means that you would have to play every hand till the last card. Yeah. So, um, so you wouldn't ever be folding. Yeah. And that's, uh, by the way, that's actually the hallmark of an elite player versus an amateur. An elite player will fold, you know, depending on the player, around 75% of the hands they're dealt, whereas an amateur is going to fold much less than 50% of the hands they're dealt. So, elite players are thinking much more long-term and they're cutting their losses a lot more in yeah. order to get the long run win. Yeah. And there's a saying in poker among great players, which is like, it's just one long poker game, which means don't sweat one hand, don't sweat one session. You have to be thinking about what's happening in the long run. I think that's number two. Number three is I had great mentors, which mm -hmm. probably actually I should go back and make that number one. So I had great mentors who actually taught me a lot of the stuff about how do you discuss poker hands where you're really focusing on, on your decision-making and not on the elements that have to do with luck, which you have no control over. And most poker players, when you listen to them talking about hands, talk about the luck elements. I can't believe that bad card hit. Oh, such a bad beat, which is what you call that when uh, you sort of lose an unexpected hand. Whereas I was trying to figure out, um, did I bet the right amount here? This is what, how I was reading my opponent based on their actions. Do you think that was a good read? You know, so on and so forth. So those were my mentors really coaching me to that. And so that all helped me to, I think, really, really de-bias. Um, and the long-term, the sort of long-term view also helps you to be less emotional. And poker is a really emotional game, right? You, you do have things where you're only supposed to lose 2% of the time and you have so much money on the line. I mean, money that matters to you. And yeah that 2% hits, then you lose it. And it's really hard not to be emotional in that situation. When you're emotional, you're not going to make good decisions. So 
you know, if you have more of a long-term view, it allows you to keep those emotions down so that you can stay in system two instead of going into system one. Yeah. And we don't have time to get into it today, but I love the, um, the, uh, the, the account of the feedback relationship you had with Eric Seidel. And you've talked about that on Shane Parrish's podcast, fascinating insight there. So everybody should go and listen to that Shane Parrish uh, podcast from a few years ago. Annie, what's the worst decision you ever made, but you got lucky with a good outcome? Yeah. So it's funny. It's, it was to become a poker player. Wow. So I know everybody's like, what? So here's wow. the deal. I was in graduate school and, um, I was literally ABD in the sense that I'd already done my dissertation work. So this is five years in. I'd done my dissertation work. Uh, I'm planning to go become a professor. This is my plan. My life is already planned out for me. Um, And I just, I had to defend the thing and, and go out on my job talks. So I was on my way to my first job talk, just academic speak for job interview. And um, which was at NYU. And I had been sort of battling a, a kind of chronic stomach illness for a couple of months. I, you know, started sort of, you know, going to a gastroenterologist, sort of trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and it became acute, right, basically, as you know, right before this NYU job talk. And um, I actually ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. So I had to cancel all the job talks and basically know that I needed to wait a year to, to come out and, and go back into academics. So I'm sick and I'm having to take some time off from the thing that I love. And I now don't have any means of income. And my brother, who had already been playing poker, suggested that I go play poker in the meantime um, to support myself. And it was kind of the perfect thing for me to do because I was still recuperating. And so, you know, I couldn't really do like a nine to five. And also I was kind of like mid about to jumpstart this career of academics. So I couldn't, I couldn't just go and like start a new career. And so this was like flexible hours. And it was kind of something that I didn't really feel like I needed to commit to. And so I just kind of started playing and I was making money. And then I just sort of never left. And the reason why I think it was a bad decision was because I never went through a process where I thought, do I want to go back to academics? Do I want to stay in poker? It was more, I don't feel well, I'm embarrassed because I don't, you know, I sort of feel like I failed my program by getting sick is only like someone in their twenties could ever think like that getting sick was somehow failing, but that's what I thought at the time. And I was kind of embarrassed and I sort of didn't want to, I don't know, I was sort of avoiding sort of facing like people being, you know, mad at me for having left for a year. Um, And I was making money at poker. So I just kind of kept going and I didn't make a conscious choice about it. And obviously it had an amazing outcome. I think it was a terrible decision. And I'm not, I just want to make it clear. I'm not saying that had I gone through a process, I wouldn't have also ended up playing poker. I may very well have, but there was no process involved in the choice at all. It just sort of happened. So that's why I consider that a really bad decision. And I I can truly say that for any other choice that I've, I've made since then, I haven't done that again. I, you know, when I'm, when I thought about retiring from poker, I really thought about the different options and what was I going to do when I thought about writing, thinking and bets or how to decide, I went through a process. Um, even when I started uh, doing speaking back in 2002, I went through a real process of how much do I want to pursue this? What, how much time do I want to spend on this? What could be happening that would make me realize that I like this more than I liked poker. Um, and I realized it was when that was what I wanted to, you know, when I was getting more happiness out of it and when that was what I was spending my time on. 
So I'm a, I'm totally horrified by that decision. I think it was awful. I can't believe that was the answer. What, what about a really great decision you made that didn't turn out well? So let me think about that. So, well, I mean, there's a lot of them in poker, but that's kind of boring. Like I, I remember, oh my God, I was so mad. The very first final table that I was ever at, um, I opened the pot, meaning I opened the betting with jacks. There were only six people left in the tournament. I opened the betting with two jacks in my hand. This is quite a strong hand. And this guy named Gus, Gus from Costa Rica, I still remember him. Um, he moved all in for, for enough money that it was going to cause me to go broke. And Jax is a very strong hand, but you know, it's, it's not like two aces. Like you still have to really think through and make a decision. And this person had been playing like what we call pretty snug, meaning he hadn't been really pushing people around. Um, so I had to sit back and decide whether I wanted to call with two Jacks and it was quite a hard decision, but I came to the conclusion. I had sort of played with Gus enough to know that he was kind of picking on me because I was a girl. Um, and that I thought he really was trying to sort of shove me around in the pot and sort of assert himself over me. So I ended up calling uh, and he had two nines. So just to give you a taste of how great this decision was by me, he could only win the pot 18 and a half percent of the time. And if I win, I have most of the chips on the table with only five people left. So like I'm now like a favorite to win the whole tournament. So this was like very high stakes, great decision. Well, I hit a jack. So now he's got like no chance to win, right? So there's like a jack, I think it was a jack and an eight on the board and a two or something. So now it's like, he's got two nines. I already have three jacks. How's he going to win? Well, the next card is a 10 and the next card is a seven and he makes a straight oh my and God. I get knocked out of the tournament. So it was oh a great decision. It just turned out poorly. So that was when Eric Seidel said the thing to me because I went up and I complained to him. This was my first final table. I was completely devastated. And I'm telling him, I can't believe this. Like Gus had two nines. I had two jacks. This was the most horrible thing that happened to me. And he said to me, do you have a question here? Like, do you think you played the hand poorly? And I said, no, I fit. This is why I'm so mad. I figured out to call with the jacks, even though he was putting a lot of pressure on me. He said, well, then I don't want to hear about it. Then it was just bad luck. Like, why are you telling me this story? I have my own bad beats to deal with. If you have a question, come to me. But if you don't have a question, don't just come to complain. So those two things are actually wrapped together because that was the hand that caused Eric Seidel to say that to me. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Annie, this has been such a wonderful conversation. The time has flown by. I, I only have one more question for you, I promise. And, and I'll tell you why I have it after you, after you answer it. But Okay. How have the experiences of your life shaped and informed the way that you treat other people? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, how deep do we want to go? Because like, are you my therapist? <laughs> hey, I got a couch behind me. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think... You know, it's this weird thing about poker where... In some sense, you have to have quite a bit of empathy because part of being a great poker player is to stand in somebody else's shoes to try to figure out what they're thinking. But then at the same time, it's a game where people, where you can really lack empathy um, because there's a lot of sort of like 
running other people down and talking about how bad they play and, you know, sort of almost like laughing about them and how, oh, they're such donkeys. There's like, there's all these words like donkeys or fit, like that person was such a donkey or that person was such a fish, you know, or uh, you could call them a tourist, right? Like there's all these bad words for people who are bad players. And I think that 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 dual experience really changed the way that I I thought about people, but weirdly in a good way, because I would hear this and I kind of, in the beginning of my career, I saw myself getting caught up in this. And then at some point, I kind of didn't like the way that I sounded. And I sort of stepped back and said, who am I to say this? Because that person might be a bad poker player, but that doesn't mean they have the same goals that I do. They may not, many of the people that I played with weren't sitting down with the goal of being a professional player. They were sitting down with the goal of having fun. And they were clearly using like recreational money that they might have that they might otherwise use uh, on a dinner or a bottle of wine or a trip or whatever, depending on the stakes that I were playing, to have fun playing poker. And for them, that was they were playing well because they were playing toward their goal of like getting in the action and so on and so forth. And that who was I to say who that person was because I didn't even know them. Um, and I think that that is something that I have carried with me throughout my, my whole life. I really try to do that. And I'd like to say, just like everybody else on the planet, I don't know that I'm that successful at it. You know, still when I come across someone who holds like different political views than I do, it's hard for me not to feel like that person's uninformed or that they're just an idiot or whatever, right? It's hard not to have those thoughts go through your head. But I think that I've, because of my experiences, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit better at pulling myself back from the edge of those thoughts and saying, I don't know this person. I don't know what their experiences are. I can't really stand in their shoes. I don't know, you know, what, who their family is. I don't know what's affecting this, this belief that they have. And I ought to instead approach them with curiosity. And again, my only rule is if you're not arguing in good faith, then I am not going to have empathy for you. But as long as you are, I'm going to approach you with an open mind. And I'm going to try to, to have the kindest interpretation of what, what, who you are or what you're thinking or, or what your life is that I possibly can. Yeah. You know, and again, I fail at it, but I think that I'm better because yeah. of it. Annie, that's such a wonderful wonderful answer. And thank you for answering it. I feel that, uh, I, I feel that so much in my heart. And the reason that I was, I felt compelled to ask you that question is as I was getting through your book, it became really obvious really quickly that you just write with such humility. You don't talk about yourself. No. You don't talk about your, your successes and your experiences. And, and you write in such a manner where it's very, very clear your only intent is to help and to meet people wherever they're at. You don't talk down to people. You talk and speak with them in terms that they will all understand. And um, um, even evidenced by your, your appearance today, just thank you for being so humble and so gracious and so yeah, good. It's like the time. nicest thing ever. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, it just, it's such a, it just hit me so hard. Like, and, and just so clearly dealing with you and over the last several, uh, several weeks leading up to your episode. So I, I didn't want to miss a chance to talk about it and thank you for it. That is so nice. In America, we'd say that's very Canadian. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Well, you know, we, we have, a, we have a little bit mighty community of leaders and, and I, I know 
with great confidence, I, I am speaking on behalf of anybody that will listen to this episode today and who took the time to join us. Now, I, I have to give you a chance to plug what you're working on before we go. And then, and then maybe, oh, I can, sure. I, maybe I can convince you to come back to talk about it when it's out. Oh, no, I will next. Yeah, next fall. So it's a little weird. So I just want to say to everybody, like book, the book cycle, the cycle of how long it takes to like sell a book and, and write a book and then get the book on the shelves is really long. So um, last Last fall, a year ago, when How to Decide came out, um, I was doing lots and lots of podcasts. And as we talked about a little bit today, this idea of like, can you quit the decision? Um, there's like maybe a page and a half or something in How to Decide that's on that topic. And what I found when I was doing the podcast was that I kind of kept veering the conversation over to this concept of like quitting and why loss cutting is so great. Like, why is it that poker players fold their hands so much? That's a form of quitting. I'm quitting the hand, right? Um, and I was sort of talking about it just in terms of like the value of knowing like why quitting should be a good thing and not a bad thing. But then, um, you know, I also started thinking about like, man, quitting gets such a bad rap, right? Like quitters are, winners never quit. Quitters never win, what? No, I was a total quitter in poker. I was folding hands all the time and I won a lot. No, quitters win all the time. And I just realized like we have this tendency toward believing that per persistence or perseverance is just like carte blanche, like no qualifications, just an amazing thing, right? Like just stick to it and you will succeed. And we've all heard that. And that's not true. It's stick to things that are worthwhile to stick to and quit everything else because you have a limited lifetime. You have not just like limited money or, or whatever. You have limited time on this planet to be spending times that are going to bring you to your goals, whatever that is, life satisfaction, happiness, money, health, whatever your goals are. And you can't do that by sticking to everything. You have to pick and choose. And the problem is that when you look at the science, it is very deep and rich telling us that we actually do not quit enough. So there's a couple things. One is that uh, lots of evidence showing that we tend to quit things too late, right? In terms of just like, um, um, if you ask people when they feel that they have a very close decision about whether to stick or quit, and you flip a coin for them, and they decide, they you know, you say, okay, heads you you stick, tails you quit. And remember, they're saying it's a really close decision by definition because they're asking, you know, they're willing to flip a coin. The quitters are happier. Okay. So if it was really a close decision, they should be equally happy either way, but they're happier. So what that tells you is people are getting to that quitting decision late. And we know that management, you know, aphorism, like the first time you think about letting go of an employee, that's when you should do it. And it's because we know that we do that too late. Right. But then there's all these cognitive forces, things like a simple one that I'll just mention, which is sunk cost, that feeling of, if I quit now, I can't get my money back. I can't get my time back or my time will, like I was spending, I spent the last year on this project. If I quit, then I'll have wasted that time. Even though that time is already spent, what should matter is going forward, what path, what projects could I be focusing on and spending my time on that are gonna sort of get, earn me the best expected value that are gonna get me the best results in the long run, right? And that's what you should care about. So I got really deep into this topic, started doing a whole bunch of research, got deep into the, you sort of, you know, I already knew the lit, but I, I did a brand new lit search, you know, really got deep into it, wrote an 80 page proposal that I sent off to my publisher. They were like, yes. So the book is called quit. And so, um, 
almost done writing it. So I sold it back in February. It takes a while to write a book that's this long. I'm just about done with it. And then sadly, it won't be coming out until uh, October 4th of next year because it just takes a long time. But I am so excited about this topic. I I mean, I'm just so into it. This has so many great narratives, whether it's like uh, things from climbing Everest or stories about like why Sears went bankrupt and what that has to do with quitting to, you know, individual stories of people who quit and then shifted to something else and, you know, ended up, you know, having amazing results or, and um, just really trying to make the case for quitting and more, more often, you know, switch to stuff, explore new opportunities and be someone who's shifting around a lot. And I suppose a little bit motivated reasoning, because of course I'm somebody who's done a whole bunch of stuff in my life and quit a lot of stuff, but yeah. it's, it's my yeah. bias. So I'm, I'm so into it. I'm so excited. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. I'm already thinking about all the ways that I have uh, hung on too long to various activities in my life that I would have been way happier had I cut my losses. So, right. Well, I mean, here's the thing, like, have you ever quit something? Like every time you quit something, don't you always look back and go, Oh, I should have done that six months earlier. Like you're never like, Oh no, I shouldn't have ever. It's always like, Oh, why didn't I do that sooner? Yep. That's exactly, that's exactly the, the automatic response. So uh, yeah, I can't wait to read that. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you about that when it comes out. So, uh, so next fall, uh, and it'll be a hot, uh, it'll be a hot seller for Christmas of 2022. I can already imagine. Well, you know, let's cross our fingers that people will be into the topic as I am, but I write books cause I'm into them. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, look, I think I have something to say. I hope it will help you. Um, if you read it, great. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the way that I approach it. Yeah, absolutely. So Annie, thank you again for joining us today. I have just enjoyed this, uh, this time with you so much. Thank you so much. This is so fun. And so for everybody else uh, to stay connected with us. So of course you can track uh, Annie Duke down and Annie, Annie, where, where do you prefer people track you down and follow you? So if you want to actually hear the real me, Twitter is the best place. Okay. After, after we've just run down social media, but yeah. that's at Annie Duke. All right. So find Annie on Twitter. And uh, you can stay connected with us at Results on all your favorite social platforms. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and of course, subscribe to the YouTube channel or the podcast version, wherever your favorite podcasts are available. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter We'll take care of the rest.